Well, good morning, Lighthouse Baptist Church. Good morning. So good to see you all today. Would you please bow your head with me and let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this day. God, we thank you so much for the chance to worship you today together with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, we also thank you that today we get to honor and celebrate um, those soldiers who have paid the ultimate cost, they paid with their lives uh, for the freedoms that we get to enjoy in our country. Uh, Lord, we pray this prayer uh, every Memorial Day. Uh, but God, we, we thank God for our Savior, Jesus, who sets us free from our sins. And we thank the men and women for fighting to keep us free so we are able to worship in the church of our choice. Thank you, God, for Kid, Ron, and Joe for their service, God. We're blessed to have them in our, in our church, and we're blessed for what they've done for us. Uh, God, we just want them to feel uh, appreciated and loved today and every day. So, Lord God, we thank you for that. And, God, I pray that you'll speak through me today. And, God, I pray, God, that as we talk about the subject of repentance, that we'll know that repentance and turning to you it's for everyone. It's not just for some. It's for everyone. Lord God, please speak through me. And I pray, God, that you'll speak to us through your spirit, through your word. And we love you, Lord. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, usually uh, I start by reading our entire passage. But today I want to do it a little bit differently. Today I want us to go through our passage in chunks, piece by piece. So first, if you have your Bible with you, we're just going to read those first two verses. We're in Exodus chapter 32 today. And we're just going to read right now, we're just going to read verses 7 through 8 to start off. So Exodus chapter 2. Verse 7 through 8. So last time, I was here a couple weeks ago before I got sick last week and had to miss. If you remember, we talked about the Ten Commandments. And when God spoke the Ten Commandments to everyone, Moses went up Mount Sinai. So now this is, uh, that was all the way in Exodus 20. Now we're in Exodus 32 and it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become Corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So this is the fifth week of our series that we're calling learning to be free. We're in the book of Exodus because as believers, we're learning how to live as people set free from sin and death. And so the reason we're doing this series is because Easter tells us that we're set free from sin and death, but now we want to learn how to live this new life that Jesus has set us free for. And part of learning to be free as Christians, as believers, is learning to live a life of repentance. 
Repentance is not something we just do once. It's something we do our entire lives. But what is repentance? We say that word a lot, but do we know what that means? Well, Jesus used the word repent a lot over and over. Jesus was telling people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish people and he tells them, unless you repent, you will all perish. Now, what is Jesus saying? What does he mean when he says, unless you repent, you will all perish? Well, in order to understand that, we have to understand the Greek word that Jesus used. Well, actually, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, but the New Testament, the gospel accounts were written in Greek. And when we read this in Greek, the Greek word used here means to change your mind. To change your mind. Jesus says, unless you change your mind, you will all perish. Now you're probably a little bit more confused. Cody, I still don't understand what that means. Jesus is saying, unless you change your mind about sin, you won't get to where you want to go. Why? Because you'll keep going in the wrong direction. A long time ago, I guess not that long ago, but for me it was a long time ago. Um, let's just put it this way. Me and my dad and my family, uh, sadly, lately, are big Cowboys fans. We've had to put up with a lot, but uh, despite all of that, we're still fans. We still watch every single week the Cowboys. And now they have their training camp in Oxnard, California. But back in the day, they had training camp in San Antonio. So I remember a while ago, this is probably when I was maybe in middle school, high school, whichever, me, my dad, my cousin Jackie, and my brother Kyle, we went to San Antonio and we went to training camp. And so we got out of our hotel and we decided we're not gonna take the car to the Alamo Dome, we're just gonna take a bus to it. And so my dad uh, had figured out which bus to take and so we were waiting for that bus and this bus pulled up and it was, I think we were waiting for the red bus, but this blue bus pulled up and Jackie, our cousin, said, oh, this is our bus. We said, Dad said, no, that's not our bus. He said, no, this is our bus we need to take. And he, he jumped up and he hopped on it. We're just, oh, that's the wrong bus, but we better get on or else we're going to be separated from, from Jackie. So. We got on the bus and he's like, I'm telling you, this is the right bus. And we said, no, this isn't the right bus. And then the bus ended up pulling into a community college. And we sat there for, what was it, Dad? Like maybe an, an hour, probably an hour. And finally, Jackie had a look on his face. that was very ashamed, very embarrassed. And Jackie said, oh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I got us on the wrong bus. I'm I'm sorry, we're like, that's okay. But after he said, I'm sorry, I got us on the wrong bus, we decided to get off the bus, wait for the right bus, and then we eventually got where we wanted to go. But we couldn't get where we wanted to go unless we did what? Changed our mind about going in the wrong direction. And Jesus said, unless you change your mind about where you're going and turn around, you cannot get to where you want 
to go. Now, let's think about where we are in this passage. Moses, the last time they saw him was back in Exodus chapter 20. We're in Exodus chapter 32. And Moses was up on Mount Sinai for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. So we forget what that must have felt like for the Israelites. If I said, hey, church, I'm going to go up and speak to God. And I was gone for a month and 10 days. You'd probably start saying, "Um, where did Cody go? Is Cody coming back anytime soon? They started to wonder, "Is, is Moses gone for good? And the problem that they had and the root of every single sin is a lack of trust in God. And they stopped trusting God. And they said, well, we used to follow that pillar of fire, that pillar of smoke, but it, it's gone. We're going to have to make our own God now. And so they made their own God. And what did God tell Moses that they did? He said, your people have turned away. Turned away. And when we sin, that's what we do to God. We turn away from Him. What is repentance? It's changing our mind. It's turning back to God. When we turn away, notice I said when, because we've all turned away from God. But when we turn away from God, is there any hope for us? Do we have any chance of turning back to God? Or are we just done for good? Yes. Notice, we're only this far in the Bible. If we couldn't turn back to God, there wouldn't be this. This would be the ending. But thank God, this is all telling us we can turn back to God. And in our passage, it shows us how to turn back to God. So from our passage, I want us to see three things that our passage shows us about how we can repent or how we can turn back to God. So the first thing it shows us, in order for us to turn back to God, we have to grieve our sin. We have to grieve our sin. The second thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge our sin. The third thing we have to do to repent is we have to hate our sin. So the first thing we're going to look at from this passage is grieve your sin. Grieve your sin. Now look with me at verses 19 through 20. Like I said, we're going through this passage piece by piece because I want it really fresh in your memory as we go over these points. So verse 19 through 20, it says, When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Ugh. What? That's weird. What's the first thing that Moses did? He threw the tablets out of his hands. What was on the tablets? The Ten Commandments. What do we say about the Ten Commandments? What do they represent? They represent God's heart. When you see the Ten Commandments, you see God's heart. Because what are the Ten Commandments? Like we said, when you sum up the Ten Commandments, you basically get, love God. 
Those are the first four commandments. Or the last six commandments. Love your neighbor. The Ten Commandments show God's heart for his people, that they would love him and that they would love each other. So when we see the Ten Commandments shattered into pieces, what do we see? We see God's heart broken, which shows us what our sin does is it breaks God's heart. When we see these shattered tablets, we see how our sin affects God. It leaves him heart broken. Breaks his heart. Now, Moses, what did he do? He burned the golden calf. He ground it into powder. And what did he do? He made the people drink it. Why did he do that? When we read that, we say, gosh, Moses, what a weirdo. Like, what? That doesn't even make any sense. But hey, if Moses is weird, you're weird too. Because we do things like Moses did, and we don't even realize it. For example, have you ever, if you have a child, or if you did have a child, if they used language that was offensive to you and you knew it would be offensive to others, did you ever wash their mouth out with soap after they did that? If somebody thousands of years from now were to hear about that, they would say, uh, what? How is, how is washing their mouth out with soap going to fix their language? Well, the reason you're doing that, whenever you tell your kid to go into your room, you say, go to your room. I want you to think about what you've done. When you're washing their mouth out with soap, as weird and goofy as that is, you're doing it so they'll think about what they've done. Moses doesn't come down from the mountain, um, find some wheels, place the golden calf on it, and go, we're just going to pretend like this didn't happen. He doesn't will it behind the mountain. No, he confronts them with their sin. He forces them to drink it in because he wants them to think about what they've done. Why? Because he wants them to feel real grief on the inside for what they've done. And unless we feel real grief for our sins on the inside, we'll never change on the outside. You realize that? If you don't feel grief about your sin on the inside, you won't change on the outside. I promise you that. When I was a kid, now remember, I'm an older brother. I'm the my brother, y'all have met my brother before. He's come here. I have the best brother in the world. I'm biased. I love Kyle. He's amazing. But, of course, growing up, we would get into fights. We'd get into arguments. And I took it on myself as a big brother to pick on Kyle sometimes. <coughs> I learned through TV and, and shows that's what you're supposed to do. So, And honestly, I was preparing Kyle for the real world. So I think I helped him in that way, but... Also, I don't think he really sees it like that. But either way, we would still get into fights and arguments. And whenever I would get caught preparing Kyle for the real world, my mom would say, Cody, you're not leaving until you tell Kyle you're sorry. Tell him you're sorry. So what would I say? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, can I go? Yeah. I said I'm sorry. Was I Sorry? 
No, I was not sorry. I just said it so that I could leave. I wasn't sorry on the inside. So nothing changed on the outside. I still treated Kyle the same way. But fast forward many years later to college. Now I'm in college. I'm no longer living at home with my family. Now me and Kyle, uh, we didn't have a bad relationship, but I would say that we weren't close because I was not very proactive in that relationship. I didn't make the effort. I didn't take the time to show Kyle that, hey, I'm, I'm your older brother and I'm here for you and I love you. No, I just kind of, you know, kept my distance. I was a couple of grades above Kyle. He hung out with his friends. I hung out with, with his friends. It's not that, you know, we didn't like each other. We just didn't hang out one-on-one at all. And so when I got to college, I remember one night I was at a worship service and as we were worshiping, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit will randomly convict you about something in your life. And when I say convict, I mean, he'll make you feel sad about something that you're doing or that you have done in order to get you to change, in order to confront you over it. And for some reason, as I was worshiping, I felt a real conviction about the fact that I had not been a very good brother. And I felt an overwhelming sadness in my heart that I hadn't been a big, a good big brother to Kyle. And I thought, Kyle needs me to be there for him. He deserves a good big brother. And I haven't done that. And it led me to start weeping and crying. And of course, that's always embarrassing when that happens, especially when you're in church. And so I, for the first time ever at church, just excused myself. I walked out of the door. And when I was out there in the foyer, in the silence, I made a commitment. I said, okay, I'm going to be a better brother to God. From now on, I'm going to be intentional. I'm going to be proactive. And you know, I've never told Kyle this, but that's, to me, that's what made the change in my life. That's what made me say, okay, I want to be a good brother to Kyle. And soon after that, God gave me opportunities to hang out with Kyle. Kyle ended up going to the University of Texas at Austin. And so I would go down, I would spend a weekend with him, we'd go to a game, and we grew so close. You know, today I would say Kyle's one of my best friends. I have such a close relationship, but only because I felt real grief on the inside that led to real change on the outside. Now we see this happening in the New Testament as well. Because when we look at Paul's letters, a lot of times he'll confront them over their sins, but we see him doing this a lot in 1 Corinthians. When you look at 1 Corinthians, there's a lot that's going on that's wrong in the Corinthian church. And Paul over and over again is bringing up what they're doing wrong or what they're refusing to do right. And he's confronting them over it. Basically, He's doing what Moses did to the Israelites. He's burning up their idols, grounding them to powder, and making them drink it. So in 1 Corinthians, he's trying to make them feel sorry for their sins. And it must have worked. Because when we read 2 Corinthians, he actually talks about the amount of times that he told them to repent in 1 Corinthians. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8 through 11, listen to what he says to them. He says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. He says, none of that would be produced in you unless you felt real grief in your heart about your sin. He says, I don't want to produce worldly sorrow in you. I want to produce godly sorrow in you because worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. What's the difference? Worldly sorrow is just feeling sorrow for yourself. It's like me when my mom would say, Cody, say you're sorry to your brother. I wasn't sorry that I hurt my brother. I was sorry that I got caught. I was sorry for myself. And that's worldly sorrow. It's selfish sorrow. It's about me. Godly sorrow is different. It's like the sorrow I experienced in college that was about someone else. It was about the one that I hurt. And godly sorrow is sorrow that I hurt God. I broke his heart. I caused the tablets to be shattered. And only godly sorrow, only that kind of grief can lead us to turn back to God, can lead us to repent and turn away from our sin. If we are ever going to repent from our sins, we have to taste how bitter our sins are. We have to grieve in our hearts the grief that they have caused in God's heart. So the first thing we have to do to repent is to grieve our sins. Grieve your sins. But also, according to our passage, the second thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge our sin. Acknowledge your sin. Look at verses 21 through 25. Moses said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughing stock to their enemies. So the question is, did Aaron sin? Yes. When we look at the passage, when we look at the reality, the true story of what happened is that they did say, make us gods that will go before us. 
Aaron did say, give me your gold. Aaron did throw it into the fire, but it didn't just pop out a golden calf. No, he took tools and shaped it into the calf and he worshiped it with them. So, did Aaron sin? Yes. Did Aaron acknowledge his sin? No. According to Aaron, he did nothing wrong. Who cares? What does it matter if Aaron acknowledges his sin or not? Well, look at verse 25 again. What did it say? Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. Because Aaron refused to acknowledge his sin, what happened? His sin persisted. Why did the people show no control? Because Aaron showed no control. And as long as he stood there pretending like nothing was wrong, things were going wrong. Well, you refuse to acknowledge, it persists. And if you don't acknowledge your sin, your sin will persist. And the effects and consequences of your sin will persist. You can't expect to turn away from your sin if you won't confess your sin. And we see this primarily in the New Testament with the religious leaders of all people. In Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32, it says, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Now remember, tax collectors were outsiders. They didn't like tax collectors. Why? Because, number one, they're working for the Romans. That's a big, big no-no. Don't be a traitor. Don't work for the Romans. Number two, the tax collectors often practiced extortion. They often demanded more money than people actually were meant to give them. Why? So they could keep some on the side. So we don't like tax collectors. We're going to exclude tax collectors. We don't invite tax collectors to sit with us or to eat with us. No, they have no place with us. Except for the fact that Jesus just invited one of them to become a disciple. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, who in the New Testament, who were the people that were going to Jesus for help? It was always the people that acknowledged their sin. Always the people that acknowledged that things are wrong in my life. Now, on the other hand, who was it Who were the people that refused to come close to Jesus? Who always kept him at a distance? In fact, they were against Jesus. It was always the people who refused to acknowledge their sin. And the Pharisees, because they refused to acknowledge their sin, their sin persisted. In fact, Jesus told them, 
What do you do? You cross land and sea to make converts and you make them twice of a son of hell as you are because they refused to acknowledge their sin. Their sin persisted. They couldn't come to Jesus and they couldn't have the great physician deal with their sickness. What did Jesus compare himself to in this passage? He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus compared himself to a doctor. Now, no matter how sick you are, you will never go to a doctor until you admit you need a doctor. Now, whenever I go to a doctor, I don't know about you, but when I sit down and they sit down, they say, what's wrong? How can I help you? I don't ever say nothing. I just came to hang out and see how you're doing. No. I say this and this and this is wrong. It doesn't mean I can't go to Jesus to hang out. Jesus is a brother. He's a friend. But he's also a doctor. And unless I acknowledge my sin, I won't go to him as a doctor. I won't go to him for healing. I won't go to him for help. Now verse 7 through 8 The first two verses that we looked at, what do they show us? God tells Moses on Mount Sinai, before he goes down and sees for himself what sin Aaron and the Israelites have committed, which means that God knows about our sin, whether we acknowledge it to him or not. When we confess our sins, it's not so that he will know. It's so that we can bring it to him and so that we can receive help and healing for them. So that means don't hide your sin from God. Be honest. Be honest with God about your sin. He already knows about it. God, in verse 7 through 8, shows us that He already knows about our sin. But in Jesus, God shows us that He wants to help us. He wants to save us from our sin. So what does that mean we should do? It means that you should tell the doctor What's wrong? Tell him what's wrong. Tell him your sins. But tell him your sins knowing that he didn't come for people who think they're perfect. But he came for people who knew that they've messed up and need help. Have you sinned? Do you struggle with sin? You're exactly who Jesus came for. It's not the perfect. It's not the righteous. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. Go to him as a doctor because you need him and his healing and his help. Acknowledge your sin. But the third thing our passage shows us to do in order to repent is hate your sin. Hate your sin. Look at verses 25 through 29. It says, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp, from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, 
about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. In other words, you chose obedience to the Lord and put the Lord before relationships to family and friends and neighbors. Now, I'm not going to lie, and I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. This is a hard passage. This is hard. When I read through it, preparing for the message for this week, I did a double take and thought, did I read that right? Hold on, let me read that again. Is that really in there? Yes, it really is in there. Now, the reason that we struggle, we have such a hard time understanding this passage is because we don't view sin the way that God views sin. We have such a lighter view of sin than God does. When we think about sin, we, we, we say, oh, yeah, sin is kind of kind of a problem. It's kind of bad. But God says, no, sin has such a greater gravity than you can comprehend right now. If you could see sin the way I see sin, you'd throw up. You'd be disgusted. It's horrible. It's evil. How does God view sin? Throughout the Bible, we see that God views sin as cancer. Sin is cancer to God. If you took your child to the doctor and the doctor said, your child has cancer, you wouldn't say, oh, that's not that big of a deal. You'd say, that's a huge deal. I'm going to go to any length at all to eliminate it. No wonder God goes to whatever length he has to go to to eliminate sin, cancer from us. God views sin as cancer. Now in verse 26, this is the key to understanding what happens here. Verse 26, it says, So Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Now, all 3,000 people that died, what did they have in common? It's not that they... Or let me put it this way. It's not that the people that went to Moses were better than them. They all sinned. They all worshipped the golden calf. The difference is when Moses said, whoever is for the Lord come to me, they didn't come. Which means that they were saying, I'm not for the Lord. Which means that they were saying, I refuse to repent. And what did Jesus say? Unless you repent, you will all what? Perish. They were saying, I refuse to give up worshiping these gods. I refuse to repent. I refuse to turn around. And what's going to happen if they refuse to repent? If they refuse to turn around? They're going to entice their fellow Israelite to do what? To turn back in their hearts towards Egypt. To turn in their hearts towards other gods. To entice them to sin. Later on, we see in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, verse 6 through 11, it says, If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far from one end of the land to the other, do not yield 
to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death. And then the hands of all the people. Stone them to death. Because why? Because they tried to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. Do you see why God hates sin so much? Why? Because sin turns us away from the Lord. He said, whenever, even if it's your family member, if they entice you to sin, if they entice you to follow other gods, stone them, kill them, eliminate them. Why? Because they try to turn you away from the Lord. God hates sin because it turns us away from him. And unless you hate sin for what it does to you, you will never turn away from it. You have to see what sin does in order for you to see what it is. Now for me, growing up, even in elementary school, going to bed at night, I struggled with really bad sleeping problems. I struggled with insomnia. I would lay in bed, no matter how early I woke up, I would lay in bed for maybe two or three hours. It was horrible. I hated it. But then as I got older and I got into high school, my senior year of high school, I started having problems with nausea, which I've told you all about before. It was bad. I would sit in my first class of the day just trying not to throw up. (laughs) Sorry, I'm still getting over my sickness. But I would sit in class and I would sit there gagging, which is you know, pretty humiliating to go to school and do that. Then I would go to football practice and I would try not to throw up. I would put the mouthpiece in and try not to spit it out. It was tiring, always feeling sick all the time. But then I went off to college and the same thing happened. And it was embarrassing. I had a girlfriend at the time. We would go out to eat with her uh, parents, her family. And I would sit there the whole time in the car ride home trying not to throw up, feeling nauseated, feeling sick. You know, from then on, I went to seminary. I would drive to my 8 a.m. class gagging, trying not to throw up on the way to class, hoping I wouldn't have to throw up in class. I graduated from seminary, and I worked at a fast food place. And when I worked there, I would take people's orders, and I would have to throw up. I'd be nauseated. You can't run to the bathroom and throw up when you're taking someone's chicken order. No, you're stuck. You're stuck in the drive-thru. But then I worked at Lake Point, which is the church that I grew up going to. But the only problem is people would come in and want to talk to me about their faith. Huge, important conversations. And I would have to, what? Go up. I was nauseated. And then I became your pastor. Here. And what would happen? I would have to throw up. I would teach Bible study. And I would have to throw up. I'd be nauseated. I would preach up here and think, oh man, I'm going to throw up. It was horrible. I hated that. And I knew something is wrong with me. But I also knew deep down, if I go to the doctor, they're just going to say, Cody, you need to stop eating that horrible food that you're eating. Because I was eating 
fast food all the time. That's what I grew up on my whole life, was just eating horrible foods. And I knew if I go, they'll tell me to stop eating those foods. I don't want to give up those foods. But when I went to the doctor and they found out that I had diabetes, it was, okay, you need to change how you eat. And when I gave up those foods I was eating, you know what happened? I didn't have to throw up anymore. I don't feel nauseated anymore. I don't feel sick anymore. I don't, I don't struggle with going to sleep like I used to. I lay down in about 10 minutes, I'm asleep. I no longer have insomnia. I'm no longer lethargic. I'm no longer always tired and fatigued. In fact, I feel alive. I feel energetic. I feel awake. And the reason I took you through all of my life was to show you, man, how much misery and suffering could I have been spared from if I had given up those foods earlier in my life. But I couldn't give them up until I saw what they were doing to me. And it's the same thing with sin. You won't give it up unless you see what it does to you. You have to see sin for what it is. You can't be apathetic towards it anymore. You can't think, oh, well, whatever, it's okay. No, you have to see what it's doing. Unless you see what sin takes away from you, you won't let anyone take it away from you. Not even Jesus Christ himself. You'll hold on to it. You'll, you'll say, it's fine. I'm fine with it. No, you have to see that sin steals, kills, destroys. What did Israel's sin take away from them just in this passage alone? Just in this short passage that I read to you. It took away from them their intimacy and their closeness to God. It took away from them their representation of God. They were meant to bless the other nations through the representation of God. And now when everybody looks at Israel, they see just another nation. They're just like everybody else. What did it cost? It cost them their respect from their enemies. Now they're a laughing stock to their enemies. It cost them their brothers. It cost them their friends. It cost them their neighbors. It cost them their unity. It cost them their way. They lost all of that because of their sin. And if you can't see what sin does to you, you will not see what sin is. And you won't hate your sin. You'll be impartial. You'll be apathetic. John Mark Comer is a pastor of a church in Portland, Oregon. I read a book of his recently, and he put it this way. He said, have you ever had a friend in high school whose parents were just chill? They let her drink, smoke pot, have sex with her boyfriend upstairs, skip school. They were open-minded. Have you ever had a friend like that? Or, you know, their parents just let them do whatever they wanted them to do. You probably thought, I wish my parents were like that. I wish my parents would just let me do whatever I wanted to do. And John Mark Comer says he would see that and he would, he would think, man, that's cool. That's cool. But then he said, but now as a pastor dealing with the fallout of that kind of parenting in so many lives, I see the obvious truth. That's not cool at all. Why? Because he sees the fallout. He sees what sin takes away. He sees what it does to people. He sees the pain and the hurt that it causes. When it comes to sin, we don't always see that. But God sees that. Do you see why God 
hates sin so much? Do you see how disgusting and horrible sin is? You won't see unless you see what it does to you. That's the only way you'll see it for what it is. And when you see it for what it is, then you can start to hate sin. And when you hate sin, then you can turn away from sin. And you can leave it behind. I don't want any part of that. Look what it did to me. Look what it does to me. Look what it's done to the people around me. Look what it did to the people in this passage. Once you begin to hate sin, then you can begin to strap on your sword against it. But you cannot say, I am for the Lord as long as you're saying, I am for my sin. No, you have to say, I am against my sin. Only when you say, I am against my sin, will you be able to say, I am for the Lord. So what do we do? We grieve our sin. We acknowledge our sin. But we also hate our sin. But look at verse 30 through 35, our last verses in this passage. In verse 30 through 35, it says, The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. But now, I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Now, Moses knew that our sins do what? They turn us away from the Lord. But what did Moses want? He wanted his people to turn back to the Lord. That's what he wanted. And that could only happen through atonement. Atonement. Now, what is that word? What does atonement mean? Atonement, it's an English word that basically means what it sounds. Atonement. at one minute. When we sin, it splits us from God. Do you see that's what happened? Moses sees that they're no longer with God. But what does he want? At one minute. God, I want you and I want us to be brought back together again. Now Moses knew that here's us, here's God, here's our sin. Our sin separates us from God. God, please forgive us of this sin so that we can be with you. But, God, I'm willing, if it takes it, to die. I'm willing to die for that sin so that sin can leave and at one minute can happen. We can be brought together again. Moses offered to be the sacrificial lamb. Do you see that? Moses offered to be the sacrificial lamb, but God said, no, Moses, you can't be the sacrificial lamb. Why not? Why wouldn't God let Moses be the sacrificial lamb? Because every time God asked 
for a lamb for sacrifice. What does it have to be? A lamb without blemish or defect. It has to be perfect. Is Moses a lamb without blemish or defect? No. He's not perfect. And because Moses is not perfect, he cannot perfectly atone for sin. He cannot perfectly deal with sin. But fast forward to John the Baptist who preached repentance and baptized people in the name of repentance. In John chapter 1, 29, what does he say? He says, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God in the flesh. Where does he see God going? Toward him. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is sin? It's turning away from God. What is Jesus? It's God turning back to us. God coming towards us. Now, God wouldn't let Moses be the sacrificial lamb. Why? Because God was saying, Moses, you can't be the sacrificial lamb because I'm going to be the sacrificial lamb. You can't die for sin because I'm going to die for sin. I'm going to pay for sin. Through Moses, God said, you can't be good enough to get back to me. But through Jesus, God said, I'm good enough to get back to you. That's what we see with Jesus. And Moses, what did he do? He offered to be blotted out of God's book, blotted out of the book of life. What is he talking about? What is God's book? Well, back in those days, a town or a kingdom, they would keep a record of their people. And if somebody defected, if somebody left that country or that town, they would blot their name out. Moses said, blot my name out if it means my people being written back into your book. Do you see that that's what Jesus was doing on the cross? On the cross, Jesus was being blotted out so that your name could be written in the Lamb's book of life. Because he was blotted out. You can be written in. Your name does not deserve to be in that book. But it can be in that book because his name was taken out for you. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for you? Look at what he said at the end of verse 34. He said, When the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. Look, verse 34 shows us that for everyone who sins, there is a day of judgment coming in the future. If you've sinned, there is a day of judgment coming in the future. But for those who are covered by the sacrifice, by the blood of Jesus, that day is in the past. Do you realize that? Your sin deserves to be judged. But if you claim the sacrifice of Jesus, if you say, I want that and I believe in that, then there is judgment for your sin, but it already happened. And it happened when Jesus went to the cross. He experienced your judgment. Anyone, if you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't accept his sacrifice, what did Jesus say? Repent or perish. Turn around or you'll die. But because of Jesus, what happens? We get to live. Our judgment that we should fear in the future 
God experienced it for us. He took it for us. And this means, for you, it means that you can always turn back to God because in Jesus, God has turned back to you. Your sin has been dealt with. It's been paid for. And therefore, you can be at one. Brought back to God. So what you what should you do? You should let the love of God displayed for you on the cross be what moves you to repentance today. Let that be what moves you to repentance today. How great was the cost that Jesus paid for you? Now, I could just go up, come up here and say, repent, grieve your sin, acknowledge your sin, hate your sin. But you won't do that until you see what your sin cost your Lord. Until you see that it was your sin that held Jesus to the cross, you won't really be able to grieve your sin. Unless you see that on the cross, Jesus was acknowledging your sin, the reality of it, you won't acknowledge the reality of it. But when you see Jesus on the cross, you can say, okay, there's no denying that I desperately needed help for my sin. Unless you see Jesus on the cross and you see that you caused the nails to go into his hands, you won't be disgusted by your sin. You won't hate your sin. When you see Jesus, the great cause, the great hurt that it caused for your sin to be wiped out so you can be brought back together with God, then you won't truly repent. But when you see that, then and only then will you have the motivation. You'll have the heart to repent and to turn around. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, John says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I don't want you to sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the what? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So if and when you sin, go to Jesus over and over and over and over and over and over again. Always go to Jesus. Always go to Jesus. I know that you'll sin. I know you'll mess up. When you do, go to Jesus. He is your doctor. He is your advocate. He is your atoning sacrifice. He is your righteousness. God didn't let anything, including the cross, keep him from getting back to you. So don't let anything, including your sin, keep you from turning back to him. And because of Jesus, you are always free to turn back to him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are sinful people and we often underestimate the gravity of that. Help us, Lord, to see our sin for what it is so that we will grieve it, so that we'll confess it, so that we'll hate it, so that we'll turn away from it and through Jesus, turn towards you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. God, we want to turn back to you today. We can only do that because you turn to us through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.